Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Reginald Harris, and I'd like to welcome you to the Pratt Library. And our, well, I guess this is our closing event for Black History Month, uh, a reading by Ernest Hardy of Los Angeles and the debut of Blood Beats Volume 2. Um, this is, as always, one of our never-ending series of uh, programs uh, featured in brand spanking new, also new, our compass for March and April. And uh, next month we are gearing up for Women's History Month, including a reading at the Waverly Branch on Wednesday, the 26th, by Dr. Syke Williams-Forson, author Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power. Great title, great book. You may have heard her on NPR back when a certain person who shall remain nameless was on our local NPR station, but never mind that. Never mind, never mind, never mind, never mind. Let's not let's start no riots in here like they did up at the museum a few days ago. Anyway, um, to introduce tonight's special guest, we have another special guest, one of our friends and one of the people that we read on a regular basis um, in the Baltimore Sun and online, the pop music critic for the Baltimore Sun, Rashad Allison. Rashad, if you please. Good evening, everybody. All right. Um, well, since I'm a writer, I wrote my introduction down. Don't want to talk off the top of my head because that could be dangerous these days. But um, I am a huge fan of Ernest Hardy's work. Um, I uncovered the brilliant work of Ernest Hardy two Decembers ago. I was uh, visiting a colleague and dear friend of mine at the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I used to work as a pop music critic and um, feature writer on black cultural life and um, I found a press copy of Blood Beats Volume 1 on her desk and I asked her if I could um, have the book and she said yeah go ahead and take it consider the early Christmas present and um, and the book was you know it was a, a present it was a gift because the pages were ablaze with uh, needle sharp insight about blackness and how it was perpetually misunderstood and misrepresented in, in America but um, there was much more to the book of course and um Hardy unblinkingly delivered his view of the truth with humor and eloquence by the pound. And I remember reading um, Blood Beats Volume 1 while waiting for my plane to Arkansas um, in BWI Airport. And it was almost like one of those, it really was, it was damn near an orgasmic experience. Almost like, you know, those white women in the herbal essence shampoo commercial. I wanted to writhe and moan. And, oh, it was, it was that good. And, um, you know, I had... Um, I never had a visceral reaction like that to another critic's work. I mean, because I'm a critic, but there's some critics I like, but you know, I can be kind of catty sometimes, but I'm like, you know, I, I didn't, when I was reading this book, I didn't think like, damn, I wish I had written that, or I wish I had said that, because um, I couldn't have said it this way. And um, I just really, it seemed that f from what I gathered, not knowing Ernest, just having met him just about an hour ago, but what I gathered from his work, that he is, um, not only is a fine writer with a fine mind to mind to match but that you know he has a genuine love for pop culture and african-american presence in that and um you know and i, I just and i in fact i told my other friends about him or all my friends about him like i need to check this critic out he's he's heavy he's he's deep but he's funny and he's smart and it's and accessible and so after that i immediately found him online and um made his blog one of my favorites on my office computer and my home computer and, um, you know, I try to read anything I can find, him on, find about him on the net. So um, without further ado, I want to introduce to you um, Brother Ernest Hardy. 
<laughs> I don't know if I can live up to that. Um, orgasms. <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, it was interesting when I was um, getting ready to come out here, um, the wire, as I'm it has just exploded in Los Angeles. And, you know, people would say, you've got to look for Omar, you've got to look for Snoop. Like, you do realize these are characters, and you're living in Los Angeles explaining to people in the film industry, you know, these are characters. Um, the first thing I'm going to read to you is from the intro in Blood Beats Volume 1. And um, I have a couple of... It's sort of a stream-of-consciousness piece. What I love about Basquiat's work even when I don't actually like it, is that it is a struggle for new language and the effort to overthrow everything. But it also harms a slivered craving for validation from that which it claims and seeks to challenge. When your life is not valued, when you are shoved to the margins, the art you create to reflect who you are and what you experience of the world might likely be a howl of protest against the so-called norm. The howl might be violent or deceptively soothing. To those who are not tone deaf, it would be both at once. And those with perfect pitch might also detect the subtle attempt to harmonize with the status quo. In the same intro. The metaphorical black body is always splayed and cut open on the cultural coroner's table. Nude, inside spilling onto the floor, blood dripping, bowels exposed. All our secrets, the many enclaves of blackness, from the nether regions of hood life to the little examined realities of the Negro elite, they're scooped out, placed into jars to be catalogued and studied, theorized and sold. And the experiences that are wrung from the organs, from the bones, the skin, and the flesh, become metaphors for other people's experiences, tools for them to expand their own consciousness, models for their salvation. The um, next piece I'm going to read you from, read from is um, in volume two. And it's about the film Rise, which I... Um, <laughs> which I like and have many, many problems with. And uh, what I'm going to read you is the intro to the essay. When I first saw Rise at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 2005, I was immediately captivated by both the kids in the documentary and by their homegrown dancing, clown dancing and crumping, that the film was celebrating. Having already seen the short film Crumped that would eventually become Rise, I was psyched to see how the longer version built on the short. Something about the feature bugged me throughout the screening, however. I just couldn't quite put my finger on it. The largely white, sold-out industry crowd I saw the movie with was ecstatic in their response to the movie. The day after the screening, I bumped into my friend, New York Times movie critic Manola Dargis, who asked me what I thought of the film. Without thinking, I jokingly blurted out, any movie about the struggles of poor inner-city black folks, which leaves that crowd feeling good about themselves, has to be fucked up in some way. I just haven't figured it out yet. She laughed and nodded, replying, follow that instinct. I managed to score tickets to the festival's second screening to see if I could unravel what was bothering me. Two white critics I know decided they'd check out the film after I told them I was seeing it a second time. They assumed I was simply that crazy about it. I didn't correct them since I couldn't yet articulate what bugged me, and I really did, and do, love parts of the film. By the time the second screening ended, I had some firm ideas about Rise's flaws. The reactions of the other two critics cemented my gut instincts. One gushed, quote, Wow, 
Maybe after that movie comes out, it'll inspire black girls to get hair extensions so they can toss their hair like Miss Prissy did at the end. End quote. I just looked at him and nodded, instantly exhausted, and far too wiped out to even try to explain all that was fucked up in that response. Not to mention the fact that countless horses are already walking around ass out so that black girls can do the white girl hair toss. Also in the film, near the very end, a white boy sits before the camera and an fluent wigger says that the first time he saw Crump dancing, it spoke to him, and he instantly related to it. The second critic, commenting on that moment, beamed, quote, and when the white kid came on at the end and was just accepted by the black kids, it was all love. Yeah, I nodded. Love. The next thing I'm reading to you from is, um, well, no, I'm going to read one more, one more section from the piece on Rise. When it comes to the Negro problem in America, familiarity has bo- bred both contempt and boredom, but that doesn't negate the fact that certain obvious issues need to be articulated over and over. Blacks and non-blacks alike continue to need it explained that Negro reality in this country is an item that is heavily mediated by historical and contemporary disregard and disdain for black life. The resultant chaos and dysfunction are commodified, fetishized, and even emulated, but on terms that require not transcendence or victory, but steadily farmed oppression and ridicule. The irony slash paradox is that these are the very conditions that have given rise to the most American of art forms, those Negro creations of jazz, rock and roll, techno, house, and hip-hop, and its assorted permutations. The... Um, this next piece is, a, is actually um, an essay on Ja Rule and Crazy Bone, but I opened that piece up by talking about the art house film Lift. There's a great line in the Negro art house film Lift in which one character says to another, Black people need therapy too. The line reverberates in the movie because it's true and spoken with droll precision. It reverberates in real life because it's true and in pointed defiance of the Afro-American cultural prejudices and misconceptions that, pr- that therapy is a white thing, that psychologists and psychiatrists are for the weak, the indulged, the overly pampered. In the film, the line is weighted by context. Lift is a film about a young black woman who boosts jewelry and designer gear from high-end stores, selling most of her haul to a loyal clientele, but using the best of it to win the heart of her emotionally frigid, materialistic mother. The film is, among other things, a critique of the ways in which a lot of black folk, especially many in the hip-hop generation, use gaudy signifiers of wealth and privilege to mask the emotional and spiritual wounds, to barter for love and attention. Black people need therapy, too. Uh, The next piece is um, Antoine Fisher. I actually reviewed Antoine Fisher, and the beginning of the review, I'm sorry, the beginning of the review is, seems like it's kind of harsh, and the gym where I work out, um, Denzel Washington works out, and so the day that the review ran, I was sitting on the, um, on the exercise bike, and he comes over, and he sits down next to me, and he opens the paper, and he starts reading it. So I got off the bike, because writers are punks. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is what I wrote. The opening moments of Antoine Fisher made my stomach sink in dread. A young, dark-skinned black boy stands in a sprawling green field, dressed in a dark suit, staring solemnly ahead at a massive barn. His hand is taken by a smiling adult who leads him through the field and into the barn, where a great many black folk are waiting. Their clothing ranges from plantation chic to contemporary casual. Mountains of soul food are piled atop a long wooden table. 
This is where I thought, oh shit, I've been sucked into some Steven Spielberg, Maya Angelou, Oprah Winfrey, miasma of hello Negro ancestors, artery-clogging food, and fetishized fellowship. It was right about that point that I thought, okay, I don't need to be here when Denzel gets to that line. <laughs> but then, a gun fires, blood sprays, and the movie really begins. The bucolic scene turns out to be a dream of longing for Antoine Fisher, a U.S. Navy sailor with a hair-triggered temper and emotional wounds that bleed messily into his everyday life. I won't read the rest of the review, but what I will say is I really liked Antoine Fisher a great deal. Thank you. Um, and one of the things I liked about it is that, I don't know if many, if many of you remember, but when the film came out, it was savaged by most mainstream critics who said that, you know, you've seen this before, it's nothing but formula, you can miss it. But the thing is, it is a familiar template. You know, it's about the young, hot-headed, um, you know, young man who clearly needs therapy. And so when he goes into, to, into his therapy sessions with his, with, his, with his therapist, they bond, and it becomes a case of the doctor healing his own house as he heals this young man. Yes, you've seen that a million times before. But my question was, how many times have you seen a big-budget, you know, well-promoted Hollywood film where the subject matter is really black depression? And how many times have you seen big-budget Hollywood films that grapple with the fact that so much of the rage that is decimating the African-American community, that rage is the flip side of that same depression? You know, Negroes are not supposed to have psychology. So when you see films that actually try to grapple with that, um, people quite often don't even know how to process what they're seeing. What I also find very interesting is, you know, a lot of mainstream critics... When they're reviewing films from Asia or films from Europe that basically take American template, American genre, and adhere to the formula but use that formula to critique something or illuminate something of their own culture, the critics sort of bend over backwards to let you know what a savvy use of, of formula this is. But that same approach isn't applied to black film. And we saw the same thing happen with The Great Debaters quite recently. I mean, this is a film that, that there's so much going on there's so much about the nuances of black life you know, tucked into this very smooth, very, very well-oiled machine. But it's very smart, and, and the nuances are where the story is. But again, too often the film is just dismissed out of hand. So one of the things I try to do in my reviews is sort of to illuminate that which is quite often dismissed or simply not seen by you know, a lot of mainstream critics. Um, this next piece is um, called Young Soul Rebels, and it's about black experimental queer filmmakers. As someone who makes a living writing about popular culture, I find myself drawn more and more these days to those artists, filmmakers, musicians, writers, who voluntarily or not, happily or not, find themselves creating from the fringes of mainstream visibility and comprehension. The admiration that I once gave freely to almost anyone who identified as an artist is now an item that I'm miserly with. It's increasingly reserved for those who eschew celebrity, who strive to question as passionately as they declare, and who challenge or subvert rather than giddily position themselves to be co-opted by the sprawling machine of corporate culture. It's for those who grapple honestly with the issues of race, sexuality, class, culture, and politics while trying to produce art. Black, because American culture is such a visual-oriented entity, one in which we constantly learn, mislearn, and shuffle information about others and ourselves based on cues gleaned from mass media, the power of the image is enormous. At the movies, we learn genre formula before we even know what genre is. We learn what a man is, what a woman is, and how the two are supposed to relate. 
We learn about assorted power dynamics and how they pop according to gender and sexuality. We learn who has what kinds of power as determined, if not overdetermined, by race and class. And occasionally we're shown how to fight the power. But there is, I think, a longing on the part of many black and queer folk to watch films and simply see themselves slotted smoothly into genre outlines and movie formulas. And this isn't just a black or queer thing, of course. We all receive the same information, the same cultural lesson, the same attempts to fashion our desires and realities into something easily marketed and consumed, something recognizable as the norm. And we're all seduced into wanting to play along, to belong. This desire can be especially powerful in those who are marginalized in real life. Movies act as agents that validate us and argue on our behalf. They prove our citizenship. The, um, I write about music and, and film, but um, I'm, I'm primarily reading from, from film pieces today. Um, I know that you guys recently finished a film series, and so I was sort of thinking in, in that head when I was putting this... Um, this reading together. One of my favorite films, and it's not a good film, is um, Eminem's Eight Mile. And, um, and this is the opening for my piece on that. One of the richest details in Eminem's vaguely autobiographical film, Eight Mile, is sketched by director Curtis Hansen in a, a, as a tossaway moment. Jimmy, Eminem, comes home from a hard day of being poor and white in Detroit to find his trailer park mom painting her toenails, watching an old Hollywood weepy on television. The film on the tube is Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life, the classic melodrama about a very fair-skinned black girl who tries to pass for white in the 1950s. A seminal text for students of race and representation, imitation is often referred to as the story of a black girl who longs to be white. But as film historian Donald Bogle writes in his critical overview, Brown Sugar, the tale is really about, quote, a woman who does not want to be white so much as she wants white opportunities. The factory employee Jimmy wants those same opportunities. So does the real-life Marshall Mathers Eminem. That's what drives his music and his well-documented fury. It's the point of connection between him and so many of his fans, ranging from kids across the spectrums of race and class to the fearful middle-aged white pundits who ride his jock like an East Oak groupie while watching their investment portfolios disintegrate. They all just want white opportunities. One of the th other thing that I wanted to say, going back for a moment to Antoine Fisher, and why I'm actually a huge fan of Denzel Washington, is because, you know, Denzel Washington is a man. He's an adult, and I feel that pop culture at this moment is is sorely lacking in adults. I was actually two days ago with a friend in a um, in a diner in Los Angeles, and Jared Leto walked in. And for those of you who may not know, Jared Leto was sort of the male object of affection in the television series, My So-Called Life. So Jared, Jared Leto must be about 33, 34 years old now. And when he walked into, this, into the establishment, you know, I looked at him, and he must weigh about 70 pounds. You know, he's wearing the skinny, you know, skinny black jeans and this you know, probably incredibly expensive but really you know, shabby um, jacket that hugs his frame. And he has the body of like a 14-year-old boy. And I turned to my friend and I said, you know, when Humphrey Bogart was 34, 33 years old, he would walk into a room and he would fill it. You know, when Cary Grant walked into a room, you know, it took your breath away. You thought, that's a man. You know, and there's something, and I don't know quite what it is, but there's something in our culture right now where there's a real fear of grown-ups. There's a real fear of adults. And one of the things I love about Denzel Washington, you know, when you're watching American Gangster and there's a long shot 
of him walking down the sidewalk and you just think, okay, that's a man, you know. And there's something in the culture now where, you know, the 15-year-old girls are hoes in rehab, you know, flashing their naked genitalia as they get out of cars. And then the, you know, the 45-year-old women are all Botoxed and nipped and tucked and siliconed and trying to look 15. And so there's this, there's this bizarre relationship to adulthood and to responsibility. And um, I think that sort of speaks volumes about where we are as a culture. And um, I haven't written that out much, but it really, that's one of my current obsessions, just trying to locate grown-ups in pop culture. With that in mind, I actually wanted to read um, something else from Volume 2. I have um, an essay in here on um, Diana Ross, and I have another one on Janet Jackson. And I think that they both sort of really help um, illustrate my point. Midway through the piece on Diana Ross, I write, Ross was always deemed the slight one, both in the Supremes and in the context of other female pop and soul singers. What's interesting, though, is how the Supremes, in their diaphanous gowns and coordinated wigs, and solo Ross with her glitter and weaves, are Amazon warriors compared to the fear-defined, desperation-driven women that now populate the popular, that now populate the popular wet realm, all nipped, botoxed, tucked, and starving, chasing adolescence and fleeing any hint of real adulthood. Diana Ross was 27 when she recorded her jazz album, Blue. She was ambitiously nudging herself into line with artistic heavyweights by immersing herself in some of the toughest and most poetic of lyrics. Mariah Carey, at 35, penned and sang the words, These chickens is ash and I'm lotion. Um, a couple of Mariah Carey fans. Um, I wrote a piece on uh, Janet Jackson when her album, Demita Joe, was released. And that was, of course, after the whole um, Super Bowl incident. And um, I, I sort of you know, defended the album because it's really it's not the horrible album that a lot of people claim it is. <laughs> Wait, I'm the speaker. <laughs> um, but when in closing, I wrote the following. The real p- problem for Janet is that, in total... Demita Jo underscores her as the ultimate modern American sex symbol in ways that she didn't intend. As she cruises toward 40, she has to figure out what it means not only to compete with her own cultural spawn on a playing field whose terms are viciously youth-obsessed, but also what it means to be a mature woman who is sexually vibrant, sexually curious, and willing to speak with candor about her desires and experiences. For Jackson, that simply translates into a breathy cataloging of sexual positions and X-rated activities. With her airy, multi-tracked voice as her calling card and primary weapon, and her slight, to say the least, lyrics as the bullets, she comes off more as a sexually precocious teeny bopper than a woman of the world. It's, just, it's not just that there's no depth to her boudoir insights and philosophical musings, or that the bulk of her lyrics manage the unimpressive feat of, both, of being both explicit and banal, but that she's morphing into an aging porn starlet of the most tragic type, Chasing relevance with ever bigger hair, ever bigger boobs, and a willingness to fall to her knees in mirthless, monotonous mimicry of sexual ecstasy. It's like, after all the fucking and talking about fucking that she's done, she has almost no idea what true liberation or even true pleasure really is.
Okay. Um, and a willingness to fall to her knees in mirthless, monotonous mimicry of sexual ecstasy. <laughs> um, one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done was with the French filmmaker Agnès Varda. Several years ago, she was in Los Angeles, and she was um, promoting her film, The Gleaners and I, which is a truly exquisite documentary um, about homeless people who... Sw- who basically carve out their, their existence living off the scraps of, you know, that, that restaurants and basically, you know, people who make surviving toss away. And, um, you know, Agnes Varda is largely considered to be the godmother of the French New Wave. And she was 72 years old, and I loved her. I was sitting waiting for her in, the, in the, this Venice cafe, and she walked in. She didn't have an entourage. She had these really amazing oversized you know, sunglasses, and she was about this tall, and, um, you know, really looked like someone's grandmother. And uh, she had this really charming, charming accent. And what I liked about her was that she really embodied to me the kind of artist that I most respect and the kind of artist that I, um, that I am most empathetic toward and that I have the most sympathy for. And that's someone who truly follows their own muse and who truly is trying to grapple with questions of, of who we are and why we are on this planet. And... Um, this is going to be the last thing I read because one of the things I was trying to do in the second volume especially was create a through line of, I didn't want to be, to be heavy-handed or sappy about it, but I really wanted people to read it, and especially um, young artists, especially young people, and, and hopefully feel, I hate to use the word empowered, but I'm going to use it, um, but to read these words and to, to sort of see the kinds of warriors that true artists are and, and, to, and to realize that it is an incredibly, incredibly hard, hard path to follow. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is the way that language is so devalued in our culture now and words like artist and underground and alternative are, are co-opted in, in their sort of demographic marketing terms. They don't, they've been stripped of true meaning. And so, you know, so much of what is deemed our underground culture, so much of what is deemed our edgy culture is really brought to you by Starbucks. It's brought to you by Viacom. And it's been very well vetted before anything remotely threatening or interesting can actually come forward. And so someone like Agnes Varda, you know, um, the 72-year-old woman who's making films the way she wants to make them still, um, to me, is a, is a true heroine. So the final question that I asked her, I said... You were making independent film before it was really called that. What is your assessment of contemporary independent film? And her response, and I wish I could do her very charming French accent, but I'm not even going to try. If you call yourself an independent filmmaker, you first have to have an independent mind. It starts up here. She taps her temple. Do you really want to do what you've been told to do by your family, friends, or school? I think independence is very difficult because we are not raised to be not by family, school, or religion. They teach us not to be. Sometimes it is good to be part of a collective, fighting together with other people. But to be an independent filmmaker, you need community, inspiration, and patience. This is true. Try to be independent in your mind, which is very difficult. I believe it is still difficult. Try to open yourself to others. Be curious all the time. If something tickles you, disturbs you, enrages you, you have the beginning of inspiration. We artists need inspiration, but we are not full of inspiration. I'm an artist, and sometimes I feel empty. I really feel that way very often. I have nothing to say, no message. I feel like that for months sometimes. 
I still do things. I work in my company. I take care of other people. But then something comes and off I go. Maybe this is my last film. Maybe something will bring me to do other things. And maybe it's okay. I have never done a film just because people asked me to do so. You need something trembling in you like you are in love. If you don't have that, I don't work. That's why I did so few films. I made very few films for 46 years. But that's okay. That's okay.